Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show that focuses on people and organizations making an impact in North Texas. I'm your host, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan, and joining us first this morning is Mr. Bill Hutmaker. He's the chairman of the number one British flying training school in Terrell, Texas. Bill, how you doing? I am doing great, Chris. It's a great morning. I am glad you're here, and I find your story to be so fascinating. First of all, let's talk about how in the world there is a British Flying Training School Museum in Terrell, Texas. I know this has something to do with World War II. It certainly does, and it started back in 1940 when uh, a group of cadets came over and uh, trained to fly, and just kind of back before that, the Lend-Lease Act passed back then, mm-hmm. authorized the money to train civilian pilots from different countries. So in Terrell, Texas, they realized the British needed needed uh, cadets. And they needed trained pilots. It was very tough for them to train them over there between the weather and the Nazi air superiority. They were getting shot down just about faster than they could train them. So Franklin Roosevelt realized this was an issue. And he got the Lend-Lease Act passed, and in that, it provided for British flying training schools, of which there were six. The one in Terrell was the largest and the first. So a group of citizens got together in Terrell. They purchased land. They built an airport, and then the cadets came over. A total of about 2,200 over a four-year period came through the school, of which about 1,800 earned their wings. And it's the cadets basically would go get on a ship in England. Mm-hmm. They would they would come over to either Nova Scotia or they'd come into New York. They would have to resign their RAF um, credentials and their RAF commission because we could not train soldiers. They would then board a train from either Nova Scotia or New York. They would come to Dallas, get on a school bus, come out to Terrell, spend about 26 weeks learning how to fly in two-wing biplanes called Stearmans or in what's known as an AT-6. Then they would reverse that process, go back to Nova Scotia, pick up their RAF commissions, go back via boat back to England, and then they would learn, they would uh, fight the war. This is an absolutely amazing story. I think it's hidden history. I mean, it's like, okay, we've all heard about World War II. We heard about the United States getting involved. We heard about, you know, um, fighting the Germans and then the Japanese as well. But I think very few people realize that there's this training center right in Terrell. You're, you're 
painting the picture, let's 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 paint it a little bit further. You mentioned the weather. So when you think about England, you kind of think about oh, and I've actually been there. You think about London, the London fog and and foggy weather, and the the country of England is not that large as well as right. So that's that played into it. England needed some places where they could train up their 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 pilots, right? Certainly did. They uh, Between the weather and, again, the Nazi air superiority, they mm-hmm. were having trouble training pilots. And I guess a reporter over in the U.S. put it put it pretty succinctly when she was writing, and she said she went out and she looked over the flight line and looked at all the airplanes, and they looked, she looked at the cadets who had come 5,000 miles and realized a lot of them didn't even know how to drive. Right. And yet they were coming over to to learn how to fly airplanes. And she said she looked out and she wondered to herself, why on earth would these kids, and again, they're 17, 18-year-old kids, why would these kids come over to learn how to fly here? And she said she looked up, and it was the wide open skies, the clear blue skies, and that's why. That is absolutely amazing. And to just break it down even further, you say they... They would take a, a boat to Nova Scotia. For those who aren't familiar, that's like northeast Canada. It's like right near Greenland. And then they get to New York, and then they would take a train halfway across the United States down to Texas, then get on school buses from Dallas to Terrell. That has to be a couple of weeks. <laughs> it did take some time to get them here and to get them back. So, yes, there was a lot of time involved. And, again, a lot of these kids, it's the first time they had ever been away from home. So there were several things that went on in their letters. And that, that becomes also fascinating. And, it, and all this is brought out in the museum, which is a result of, of all of this training. The number one topic that the kids wrote home about was food. Wow. If you remember, over there, they were rationing everything because they were just getting bombed like crazy, and they yeah. were trying to get their soldiers fed. And the kids come over here, and there is everything to eat. And the number one topic that they wrote home about was the food and how they a lot of them felt guilty because they just had all the different kinds of food they want. They had all the different foods. They had as much as they wanted, and that was the number one topic written home about. That is absolutely amazing. I love these stories. And by the way, we're talking with uh, Bill Hutmaker. He is the chairman of the number one British Flying Training School Museum in Terrell, Texas. And it's, it's I love these stories, and it's, it's actually somewhat topical, especially with the war in uh, Ukraine and Russia. A lot of people have been kind of following that now, completely different times with the, the Nazi Germany situation in World War II in England. But still, you had the bombings. You had people trying to stave off, you know, the uh, the, the Hitler regime. And you had the entire world trying to band together on this. And the United States played a big part of this. And here's Texas, North Texas, Terrell, Texas in particular, uh, getting being a part of this as well. So how did Terrell, Texas happen to step up? Let's talk about the individuals in Terrell who, like you said, got in touch with the right people and said, we've got space and we can build something where they can train. Well, the, uh, they, they were individual businessmen in town, and, and basically they realized that the U.S. sooner or later was going to be in the war. Mm-hmm. And they also realized that this that the training school – would be a big financial boom for the city of Terrell and would provide lots of jobs. Right, so, jobs, <laughs> jobs. It's so, all about jobs because it's the economy. 
Oh, yes. It, it, it was certainly about jobs. It was well, it was about helping the, the British. But, sure. but certainly it was about jobs to, to be sure, for sure on that. And they got together and um, um, they they got in touch with Washington and they had Speaker of their House. I believe it was Sam Rayburn. Mm-hmm. Helped Texas. Push all this through. But they had to buy the land first before they could do anything. And so they got together and in the in less than 36 hours, they raised thirty six thousand eight hundred dollars in 1941. In those in today's dollars, that's over eight hundred and fifty thousand that they raised in less than 36 hours to buy the the uh, airport, the, the land to put the airport on. Wow. And from there, they were able to go and get the contract from the government to do the uh, to do the school. That is impressive. Now, in the world of sports, there are some people who may or may not know. And you might be one of these people that know Tom Landry, the legendary coach of the Dallas Cowboys, was a fighter pilot in World War II. And he actually had a mission. His plane got shot down. I think it was in France. But, you know, of course, he survived all of that and wound up playing football and becoming a legendary football coach with the NFL and the Dallas Cowboys. But I I keep thinking about how different Texans, you know, helped helped fight the, uh, the, the war in World War II. And then you say there were a lot of British soldiers who actually came to Terrell. How many of them actually came back again or wind up staying? Um, It's it's very interesting. They started out with an association, and they would come over every year or two, and they would meet. And there could be 50, 60 of them, 100 of them coming over. But then as, uh, as, as the years went on, there were fewer and fewer. And they decided to start the museum back in the late 90s, mm-hmm. and they started bringing their artifacts over. So a lot of most of the things that are in the museum are actually from the cadets or from their families. So not only are they artifacts, but there's a story behind them. There's a picture behind them. And they started this, the uh, like I said, the museum, and it's just grown from there. And uh, it's, it's, it, I learn something every time I go through it. There are pictures there are uniforms, there are letters, there are all sorts of things in the museum. As I tell people, for, the, for, for a town the size of Terra, we've got a heck of a museum. That sounds so impressive. Can, can we go through a timeline here? So they, they, they train up the, the, the pilots, and, you know, the war ends after a while. Can you talk about how long the, 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 um, the airport and the training center stayed in place? Because I know once the war ended— it probably wasn't used that much. That's correct. Once the war ended, they actually decommissioned it, and it, it went back to uh, being an airport, which it is today. Uh, and there are only a couple of hangars left that, that were a part of the original school. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was very shortly after the end of the war that it was all decommissioned. And, you, you, uh, and in your previous question, you asked about people that, that may have come back. And, and one of the stories we have is a gentleman named Henry Magwick who came through the school, earned his wings, uh, fell in love with a girl from Terrell, as a number of them did. Mm-hmm. He went back, fought the war. At, after the war was done, she went over to England, and they uh, got married, had a couple of kids. They ended up coming back, and in the 50s, he got his U.S. citizenship, I believe, in 55, got active in Terrell politics, and was actually mayor of Terrell in, uh, like, 1979, 1980. Wow. <laughs> He was born in England and came over. That's a crazy story. It is. And, and there, are, there are lots of different stories. One of, uh, one of the cadets 
there that came through was was a part of if you've uh, um, seen the movie. Uh, well, okay. One of them is if you've uh, watched NPR, All Creatures Great and Small. Right. Siegfried, the older, uh, the older vet, came through the flight school. Wow. Now you mentioned, and then we had another one that was a part of the Great Escape. Uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. Yes. In fact, he uh, he and another gentleman, uh, he and two other gentlemen went. They were all three caught. He was put in the cooler. The other two were shot by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Wow. So and so there's the tide of Terrell. Stories. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a tide of the Terrell Texas Flight School. That that is so amazing. So they they closed it down. Uh it became like a regular airport, but I and you mentioned in the 1990s they said we've got all these these items. Let's let's bring them back over from England or we've got some items that are here in town and let's just let's just make this thing like I said it's a hidden figures kind of story where you can let people find out how Terrell, Texas had an impact on World War II. Correct. And and it's a it's a great museum. They started they started the museum. It's been upgraded over the years. We're actually in uh a, one building. We have a hangar mm-hmm. across the way that has a static display AT6. And then we have the main museum. And the city of Terrell uh has recognized that we are a, a real big part of Terrell and tourism. And so they're in the process of, of rehabbing a building in downtown Terrell where we're going to be able to add to our collections and have a downtown location. So, so we're real excited. So people can come out and they can see some of the artifacts, but uh, can they see any planes and are any of these planes functional? <laughs> uh, they, they, we have a static display AT6, which is not functional. Mm-hmm. If they, and, but on, on holidays and things like that, we have, uh, as a matter of fact, July 3rd and July 4th, we have two of the Stearman biplanes coming in that were actually used as trainers at the at the school. My goodness! And so there's going to be a big celebration. Yes, we are. Uh, uh, we're doing fireworks at the airport on July 4th. On July 3rd, we have a uh, group a group out of Nashville called the Thousand Horses coming in for a street dance concert, and there'll be food trucks and kids activities and all sorts of things. We're talking about the number one British Flying Training School Museum in Terrell, Texas. Bill Hutmaker is the chairman. And, Bill, I want to know how you got involved because you sound like you have such an interesting job. This isn't even a job. It's like a career because it's so much fun. It is a lot of fun, it's, uh, it's, and, it, and it becomes a passion. My father was, uh, was, in, was with the B-17 group out mm-hmm. in England. They were the first group that bombed Berlin. And uh, from that, I got a passion for flying. I started flying when I was 16 and uh, have flown a lot ever since. Um, not flying currently because of my some medicines I take, mm-hmm. but I absolutely have a passion for flying. My wife and I both have a passion for World War II. We've been to the D-Day beaches. We've been to all the different, all the different museums. And uh, from that, I got involved with the museum here, and things got out of control, and I'm chairman now. That is absolutely amazing. Now, I also heard that you've gotten invited to the Queen's Jubilee. What is that? And explain how that went down. And I know you were proud and impressed and surprised. We, yes, all three. Um, the uh, British consul out of, uh, out of Houston came up a few weeks ago. We got to meet with him. And uh, the, the Queen's Jubilee is celebrating her 70th year 
uh, as being queen. Mm -hmm. And there are different celebrations going on around the world. There's one going on here in Texas. And out of the uh, out of the meeting that we had with the British consul out of Houston, I got an invitation uh, to the Jubilee next Thursday down there, June the 2nd. And uh, my wife and I are excited to go down. Plus, we have a retired RAF uh, pilot who is on our board of directors will be joining us. And the three of us will be down there for the Jubilee celebration. And we are very honored to have been invited to it and are looking forward to being there. It sounds like it. All right. Do you have a wardrobe? What do you what are the kind of things you have to wear and and uh, what are some of the activities that's going to take place? We don't know exactly what's going to take place. We just got the invitation. Uh, there is a wardrobe, and, and I had not worn a suit in 12 years. So, yes, there was some purchasing going on at the <laughs> local store. And uh, my wife said, uh, told me, she said, uh, this, is, this is something that you have to dress for. It can be royal ascot with a top hat and things like that. But since I'm not from England, I'm not doing that. I'm wearing a nice suit and a tie, and uh, we will go that way to it. I and, bet uh, you might bring some cowboy boots too. <laughs> I just might. I just <laughs> might. You got to do. You know, sometimes That's right. you got to put a little touch to it. There. You got to be authentic. You got to keep it authentic. <laughs> Especially right. since you represent Terrell in North Texas. That is correct, and and we are uh, very aware of that. But we're we're like I said, we are very honored to have been invited to it, and l- are really looking forward to going. Now, you mentioned that you've been flying since you were like 16 years old. Where did you grow up? I mean, name the area, and did you go to school anywhere? And and just kind of tell us about you a little bit, because people like to feel like they know you a little bit when they hear these stories. Well, I grew up in Illinois mm-hmm. and uh, came down to te- came down to go to Texas Christian University. TCU. Uh, back in 72, graduated summa cum mediocre. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And I have, uh, I, we've been in Texas ever since. I married a Texas girl, and uh, so I'm one of those that comes down and stays. It's, um, you know, worked in sales for years and years with IBM, retired out of there, bought another business, and uh, just recently retired out of that so that I can spend more time at the museum. I also happen to be uh, chairman of the airport board of directors for the Terrell Airport, so those two things kind of go together. Very nice, very nice. How much traffic comes to Terrell? I mean, when you think about the smaller airports, North Texas is so large, and even in the proper DFW area, you've got airports in like Addison, and I could go on and on and on, and Arlington and Grand Prairie. In fact, a lot of these little planes fly in for Dallas Cowboy games at AT&T Stadium, so I know there's a lot of airports, but how much traffic actually goes back and forth to Terrell and, and DFW or, or Houston? You know, Terrell is uh, it's just, it's, it's a local airport, but we have a lot of traffic, and a couple of the reasons are, one, we have low fuel prices. But the other is we're what's known as an uncontrolled airport, which means there's not a tower at the airport. Mm-hmm. So pilots don't have to interact with the tower and, and and spend time doing that. They can come out from Mesquite or come down from McKinney or wherever, and they can do touch and goes. They can do different things at the airport. We do have a, uh, some business jets. They come in from time to time, and they'll refuel or they'll restock or whatever they want at the airport. So it's a it's a fairly busy airport. Okay, so I want to dive into the the area, the the population, the background, of some of the people in Terrell, because I know Jamie Fox, the superstar actor musician, is from Terrell, and he used to play football in Terrell, and 
I got a chance to meet him and hang out with him a couple of times, and he was in Dallas, and I know everybody in Terrell is proud of Jamie. And we talk about the museum and the fact that you had all these different British pilots training there. And I also know, you know, driving down to Austin all the time from, from Dallas, that in the little town of West Texas, there's a large Czech population. You know, they've got the they they've got all the 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 different foods down there. That everybody loves West Texas and Abbott, Texas down there on the way, and you can get all the kolaches and things like that. So, are there a lot of British people who who live in Terrell, or, or is it just a little few people that you know from the pilots that came back? There are not a lot of British people that live in Terrell, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's a few of them came back. Uh, so Terrell is it's it's just kind of a it's it's a community east of uh, southeast of Dallas, mm-hmm. and we the big thing for us is is probably the museum. There are a lot of things that are going on in the downtown revitalization now. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We had I think one of the first Bucky's. In uh, North Texas, you know that's so, something to brag. That's something to brag about. Bucky's is big time. <laughs> Everybody loves Bucky's. It absolutely is. And by the way, we have some great friends of ours that live in West, and uh, we we get down there now and then to see them. So, uh, I Terrell is a is a is a great town to come to. There are a lot of different events we do each year out here. We just finished with the Terrell Jubilee, which is different from the British Jubilee. And then we we do a tour of homes around Christmas time. We've got the big Fourth of July fireworks, and the the uh, same company that shoots the fireworks at Kaboom Town in Addison comes down and shoots our fireworks oh, nice. too. So we've got a heck of a display, and uh, it's at the airport. And I guess there were like twelve thousand people there last year, and we're looking for even more this year. But it's it, there are different things that go on. It, the the Chamber of Commerce is real active. The Visitors Bureau is active. The city's real active. Uh, we're going to be doing a Brit Bash November 12th of this year, which is going to be a celebration of things British, where we're going to be uh, having some things going on downtown that day. And then that night, we're probably going to do a James Bond-themed uh, casino. Oh, nice. Yeah, black tie and the whole thing with Aston Martins and all of that. So the town is active with a lot of things going on in it, and it's it's a great place to live. Now, we that being said, we've only been here about 10 years, but... It's just a wonderful place to live. It sounds like, and again, I've been through Terrell, you know, from here and there, heading out to East Texas and going out towards Tyler and whatnot, and now there's another reason because we're going to check out that museum. I also, just looking at the website, which is absolutely awesome, by the way, I see this, did you know, I did not know this, and I'm a guy that absolutely loves maps, I did not know that the distance from Terrell to Houston by plane is basically from London to Paris. Correct. And you can take a look at that on a big board that we have uh, on the uh, in the museum where it has outlined uh, where all the cities are in Texas and Oklahoma, Arkansas, around. Mm-hmm. And then it has overlaid England, uh, the, the UK, the, like the UK continent with England, sure. all, the places Europe. It, all the way down to, to Germany and things like that so that the the cadets could understand that flying from uh, Terrell to Houston was about what you were talking about, the, the distances you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And then the city itself rebuilt the terminal, the airport terminal, about five years ago. And it looks a lot like the actual control towers that up looked like for the school. And in the floor of that terminal is that same map. Wow. That, that's it, impressive. It's in Terrazzo tile. 
you are painting pictures. It's making, you know, not just me, but a lot of people who are listening want to come out and check it out. I, I keep thinking about things in Texas that people have no idea about. And, Bill, you may or may not know about this. Did you know up in, uh, I guess it's northwest Texas, in Wichita Falls, on the way to Wichita Falls, did you know they have camels on the ranches out there? I did not know that. So that is a fact I did not know. Listen to this, because we're talking about small world, and who would have thought that, you know, British pilots were training in Terrell. In in Wichita Falls, right outside of Wichita Falls, I found this out when I was heading out covering Dallas Cowboys training camp when they were out in Wichita Falls in the early 90s. Lo and behold, there's camels out there because there were some very rich oil tycoons in Texas who knew Saudi oil tycoons, right? And they thought that they could race these camels out here on the ranches in Texas against horses. And they would raise camels, I kid you not, to race in Texas. And there's still camels on the sides of the roads on these ranches on the way to Wichita Falls. I kid you not. The next time we're buzzing up 287 that way, we are going to take a look for them. That's right, right up 287. Okay, so back to the your museum, the, the the number one British flying training school museum. You mentioned that Terrell was the biggest. So there, you say there were six in the continental United States that the British pilots would train. Can you tell Correct. us where the, the other locations and, 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 and how many, I guess, students or pilots would train there? So there were a, a total of about 11,000 cadets that came through the different, wow. all the different schools. And there were six schools. And I can I can get some of them, but I'm probably not going to get all of them. I know there was here, there was Miami, Oklahoma, there was Clouston, Florida, there was um, Mesa, Arizona, mm-hmm. there was um, Sweetwater, Texas was just very briefly, and there's another one up in Oklahoma. Anyway, there were six of them that were there, mm-hmm. and uh, it's as I said, there were a total of about eleven thousand cadets that came through. Ours was the the first and the largest of them, and we have the only museum. That is absolutely amazing because, you know, you got to preserve history. You really have to preserve history. And I like the fact that you have this, this museum there where people can find out a small part of World War II history. And, again, you're having a celebration in July? Correct. July 3rd and July 4th is the, uh, is, is the celebration that's going on, Freedom Fest. That's what it's called. Now, there's a website, freedomfest.com, I believe. And uh, you can go, and on the uh, night of July 3rd, we're having the concert with a 1,000 horses coming in Mm -hmm. and food trucks, and we will have, uh, it's 18 and over. We're going to have some adult beverages there that night. And then uh, July 4th is open to the public. There will be no adult beverages that night, night. so uh, people can bring their chairs and their tents or whatever, and they can sit and watch fireworks, or they can visit the food trucks or do uh, the other things that are going on. Now, this is Memorial Day weekend, and we know there's a lot of veterans. In fact, there's a lot of World War II vets or people who have World War II vets in their families. Is the museum open on, on Monday, or is it closed, or are there is there anything that's going to be uh, uh, a reminder where people can come by, or should they just try to travel there sometime during the week? I would recommend during the week we're open Wednesday through Saturdays, okay. 10 to 4. Mm-hmm. And uh, or if if we have groups that are coming through or people that want to see it, we will open at any time. We uh, we had a group of 50 come through last week on a Tuesday. We were more than happy to 
welcome them. I think there was a group of 28 that came through this morning. So we do a lot of group events. We can do lunches. We can do dinners. We can do all sorts of things at the museum. I was about to ask you about that because, you know, nowadays people like to do unique things. They like to have an event or a, a private party or something, and sometimes they do them at, at museums if they're available, and sometimes they do them at other places. So you, you guys are available for those kind of things. That is correct. We are more than happy to do them and uh, and make sure that the, everybody there has a great experience. Bill, can you tell everybody the website again and if there's any other phone numbers or email addresses or any other way they can contact to find more information about the number one British Flying Training School Museum? Yeah, the website is uh, www.bftsmuseum.org. And if anybody wants any information, uh, they can certainly call the, the museum, of which I am now drawing a mental blank, and uh, <laughs> that's quite all right. Or they can uh, they can certainly get in touch with us at info at bftsmuseum.org. <laughs> and let me tell you something, Bill. I'm going to tell you how easy it is. Just go Google. Google is your best friend. You put up there British Flight Museum, Terrell, Texas, and all the information just shows up. I promise you. The exact location for the website, the entire nine yards. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for uh, for letting us talk about our museum. We are thoroughly, we are really excited about it. Most definitely. That's Bill Hutmaker. He is the chairman, the number one British flying training school in Terrell, Texas. The museum is awesome. And congratulations again for being invited to the Queen's Jubilee. Thank you very much. And y'all have a great weekend. You too. And joining us now is Mr. Robert Walsh. He's the president of Next Metropolitan Foundation. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing great. I'm so glad we're able to have you on because you've been doing a lot of things over the last couple of years here with the Next Mission and the Next Foundation. The Next Metropolitan, you guys have been doing a lot of partnering. In fact, I think just a couple of days ago, you did a, a venture with Dak Prescott's Fate Fight Finish Foundation. Uh, he was hosting a North Texas community town hall in Arlington. Can you talk about how... Next became a part of that, and how uh, I think he had also uh, the superintendent of the North Crowley, North Crowley High Schools and school system, Dr. Michael McFarland, uh, Al Jones, the Arlington police chief. He's a good friend of yours, right, Al? Yes, sir. And uh, you had Chief Noakes, of Fort Worth police chief, um, Sierra McFinn. She's also a partner with you with the Next Metropolitan, and she's a, a licensed clinical social worker. You had Ellis Valentine, the Texas Rangers alumni. Uh, and you also had um, Anthony Adjahar, uh, sergeant with the Dallas Police. Can you talk about that event a little bit and, and how it was a nice conversation with leaders? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of a steer committee that is um, headed by uh, Dak Prescott's uh, Faith Fight Finish Foundation, where we're uh, trying to bridge the gap between law enforcement and community. So, Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Um, I was um, invited to participate in the panel um, based off of my experiences um, as a local law enforcement officer as well as a mentor uh, with Next Metropolitan. And it sounds like it was a, a great occasion. I think uh, the moderator was Ryan Tillman, uh, the Breaking Barriers United. Yes. He's a great, great guy. Great guy. Yes, sir. And can you talk about some of the things that you all were going were talking about? And it's ironic because this thing was set up before the situation with the school shooting uh, a couple of days ago, and I'm sure that topic came up as well. Yeah, this was something that, you know, we began doing uh, in the early half of this year where we really wanted to get a better understanding on how we can serve our community better in multiple aspects, and not just as mentors, but also as law enforcement, um, as well as parents. So uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, partner with some great organizations to uh, to make the um, event possible. Again, uh, these young people had uh, great questions, um, and it was I was fortunate to be on on that panel to uh, not only just provide great feedback, but to listen uh, to some of the feedback from the community leaders as well as law enforcement leaders. And um, like you said, Ryan Tillman's a great guy as well, Mm -hmm. um, who was a great moderator who kind of steered everything. But this was definitely uh, Dak's vision, and uh, I was just happy to be a part of it. What were some of the questions that the kids had? Because I know they are looking for mentors, but they also have questions and because there's, these are not like kids from years ago. They've got social media. There's so much that Correct. they're aware of that, you know, we were growing up, we weren't aware of every single thing. Yeah, so, you know, one of the questions that really stood out for me was a uh, young man um, asked just for advice on being a minority male who does not have a father um, figure in his life. And how can he move forward in life without with the absence of that male role model? And of, of course, that was dear to me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, I told him is first, I wanted him to uh, understand that he's important. You know, he's important to uh, our community and to involve himself uh, himself in like-minded people. Uh, For instance, peer mentorship is extremely important. So um, I gave him some words of advice to just kind of set himself up for the future. I know uh, to set short-term goals. Um, I know as as fast-paced as as the world is right now, you know, we, we 
sometimes forget to just slow down and take it day by day. And, right. you know, and that's easier said than done, definitely. You know, and my words for this young man is to set, set short-term goals 30 days at a time. And as you set those goals, uh, those goals will help you build long, long-term success. So his question was definitely one that stood out. Uh, there was also a young man who asked a question, law enforcement-related question on, you know, how does it feel to be a African-American male um, in the community as well as an African-American police officer? Right. And how do we how do we deal with it? And again, I could answer that question. Uh, you know, growing up in New Orleans and uh, and being, you know, of course, a law enforcement officer, I get it from both ends, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately after uh, uh, an incident happens that, you know, goes viral and I get calls from family members because if they don't know any officers, they definitely know me. And um, it's tough sometimes. Just the honest truth, it's tough. But I understand that you can't judge every situation um, by what you see on TV. You have to know the facts of, uh, of the investigation. And sometimes I don't give them the answer that they probably want. But I always remain neutral. And at the end of the day, when I walk down the street and I'm not in uniform, I want to be known um, and and treated the same way. So it was important for that young man to know that sometimes um, I experienced the same thing that you experienced. But the one thing I really encouraged him to do is just comply. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you encounter an officer who's elevated and then you elevate, it, it, it's it's counterproductive. You know, someone has to remain calm. Someone has to um, have a level head. And then if he feels like he was mistreated by this particular officer, then follow up. You know, internal affairs, uh, ask the officer for its badge number and as well as name. And uh, follow up with an internal affairs complaint because we're all held responsible for the actions that we do uh, have. Exactly. And, and I think that if if everybody has a greater understanding of each other and calmly walk themselves through these situations, these scenarios, is is usually leads to a better result. And that's why I'm glad you took the time to kind of explain explain that a little bit. And also, as a a police officer of color, as as you mentioned before, a lot of people want to know more because they they either see a stereotype on television of certain police officers, or they want mm-hmm. to know if you're able to help other police officers understand their communities better, right? Correct. And Correct. so so your Definitely. hands are full because you're kind of the go-between. You're kind of like the go-between because I know there's other police officers that ask you things, and then there's, you know, people in, in the in the neighborhoods in the community that ask you some of those same same kind of questions, and they, they expect you to be able to break be the, the go-between. Yes. And, and like I tell them, I, I don't – I don't have all the answers. Right. You know, I can tell you what I would do as as Robert, but I I can't answer you know for what the policies are in you know in other agencies as well as what that officer is thinking at that time. So it's tough to judge um, that book when you're just um, sitting back and reading it because when you're in the situation, it, it's just one of those things where you actually have to make a quick decision. Um, one of the things that I believe has always helped me is to treat people like you want to be treated. Yes. You know, because and have uh, open and, and honest conversations when you're not 
uh, engaging um, um, in law enforcement. You know, mm-hmm. when if I'm not in the, actively on a, an investigation, there's nothing wrong with just going by and just saying hi to people and getting to know you, know them on on a different level. And you know, communication is the key to everything that we do. You know, no one wants to go to work and fight or have to use any type of force. So communication, I've found, has been the foundation of everything that I do. And so, so ironic that you mentioned communication because that's what that town hall was all about when they brought together, you know, youth, community groups, law enforcement leaders, educational leaders, mental health experts, and, and talking about how everybody can work together for a better North Texas. And, and it's, it is about communication. So were you at all surprised at the turnout or were you at all happy and, and satisfied that, you know, people had the conversations? Because, again, everybody doesn't have the answers, but it's good that people have a conversation so they can try to understand each other better. Yeah, I, we were definitely happy with the turnout in Again, sometimes we want quick results, but what we did yesterday was continue to plant seeds. Mm-hmm. As we continue to plant seeds, you know, we'll see those uh, those fruits, you know, uh, those kids bear those fruits. And it may not be within a month or within a year, but eventually you'll see those results. And I know that doesn't solve the problem right away. But we didn't get into the problem right away as, as well. So we have to be um, resilient as well as have patience um, as we move forward and continue to instill uh, values into our youth as uh, as they move forward and become future leaders in our, our in our country. And that leads me to talk about Next Metropolitan Foundation, organization that you founded and you're the president of. And I want to first ask, what made you want to do this? And I, I see on the website, the, the website, by the way, is absolutely awesome. It's at the Thank you. Next Foundation. That's N-E-X foundation.org. And, and Robert, can you explain how you started this thing? And let me say the quote real quick. Quote, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And that's by the great Frederick Douglass. Let's talk about how you yeah. decided to create this organization and, and, and some of the things you guys have been doing. Well, I guess the short version of it, again, I, I grew up in Louisiana mm-hmm. and, you know, growing up in the New Orleans area, in the fifth grade, I knew I was going to be a police officer. I, I knew what I wanted to do. And when I graduated from high school, I just wasn't there yet. You know, I wasn't mature enough to understand what the next step was for me in life. You know, I had great parents. Um, They instilled a lot of values in me, uh, planted a lot of seeds, but I wasn't there. I I, I wasn't ready to bear those fruits, I guess. And I was never in trouble. I wasn't a troubled kid, but at the end of high school, I barely graduated. And it wasn't because I I wasn't smart enough. It was because I was lazy, you know, and that's not something that I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. But as my friends were going to college, um, I started working at Walmart. I started pushing shopping carts at Walmart, and there was a gentleman that came uh, to the store all the time, and he saw me and asked me one day, young man, what are you going to do with yourself? 
What are you going to do with your life? I see you here all the time. And at that point, I began to manifest the destiny that God had for me. You know, and I enrolled in college. I went to Southern University, A&M College in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And I didn't look back. The great thing about that is I matured. And those friends that I wanted to be like and and, and uh, was envious of, they were coming back home because they were failing out of school. I had a year under my belt to mature and understand what life was really uh, about. And so when I went to school, I, I earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in criminal justice. And I started to mentor as well. Mm -hmm. uh, my first mentoring um, uh, agency was the Big Brother Big Sister program. I was involved in a school-based program, and I really loved it because the things I felt so good about where I was in life, and I realized I didn't get hit, get there without the help of coaches and uh, family members and just uh, friends who believed in something that I didn't see myself. And when I uh, transitioned out of grad school uh, into here in Texas, I became a police officer. And I understood, uh, my goal was always to be an undercover officer. I always wanted to work in narcotics mm -hmm. because of the environment that I grew up in. And I, and I understood what it was doing to communities. Right. And so I was fortunate enough to be a, uh, a covert narcotics detective uh, here in the city of Arlington for six years. And as I transitioned uh, from that position, I became a supervisor in the schools. Uh, so I was a school resource supervisor as well. So I under started to understand the uh, school-based portion and the school safety. And then from there, I transitioned into to the homicide unit. So I have a well-rounded uh, understanding of some of the things that these kids are dealing with mm -hmm. because I saw myself in a lot of them. So I, I always had a dream to start a nonprofit. A lot of people never knew that I was a mentor because when I worked in the covert operations unit, you don't really interact with officers very much. So for my mental health, I mentored. That's the, that was the balance. Was I hear you. That was the balance for yes. your life. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it was a big surprise. I know this is a little long, but it no, was a no, big no. Surprising. Go ahead. It was a bit surprising to a lot of people that I was a mentor. And I started to see things a little bit better as I, again, as I continue to mature. And I decided, you know, you know, I can do this. There was a kid that um, I decided to dress for prom. Um, when I was working in the schools, I was looking for three young men to dress for prom. I'm a suit guy. I love suits. You know, I know the feeling. I feel like a suit's like a drug, you know. You get that good feeling. Right. Maybe, you know. It gives you a taste of success. Exactly, it makes you feel like so, you're important, and you feel like you can. You're responsible, and you're you're looking good, and you're feeling good. Yes, sir, definitely. And so, one of the um, counselors referred me to a young man who was 20 years old and still in high school, and I didn't think that was possible. But he was 20 years old. Wow. And she told me his story, and um, I told her that I wanted to meet him. And this kid was. Um, pulled out of school in like the fourth grade and eventually decided to go back to school on his own and made his way up to his senior year. 
And I said, this is a kid that I definitely want to help. And I felt like after meeting him and, and helping him get to graduation and dressing him for prom and finding a date and just, you know, cleaning up, getting a haircut, you know, he did something for me. And I said, you know what? Think about how many other kids we can do this for. So when I started the mentoring aspect, uh, the nonprofit, <laughs> believe me, I didn't know anything about it. I just had a, a heart. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to a couple of my friends and I said, hey, I think this is the time to do this. I said, if the Lord had ever spoke to me, clearly this was it. And so we started uh, Next Metropolitan in, in 2020. And unfortunately, the pandemic happened. Yeah, March of 2020. But, and tell us how you got through yeah, that, man. because sometimes a lot of people have to make a pivot. I've talked to a lot of different organizations and individuals that said that the pandemic might have either brought them down or they learned how to do things in an even better way. Yeah, you, you know, that first year, we we were more so focused on service. So we were certified as a um, 501c3, a charity non- nonprofit, in February, and then the pandemic happens in March. Mm-hmm. So we immediately started to just serve the community. We started working at um, food banks. Right. Uh, we started working at a lot of the food banks and just giving back to the community, you know, and the nonprofit was never about the uh, financial or, you know, the aspect of it. I just wanted to give back and I felt like I had something to give. And that's what we did for a whole year. We didn't ask anybody for anything. And we just wanted to get out and and, and just serve the community and um, not knowing that it was serving us as well, just kind of interacting with people and, and, and networking. And um, so the second um, year we were able to kind of start putting our program into place and the mental health aspect was really one of the biggest things. So you, you Oh yes. uh, Miss Sierra McFan, you know, she's one of our clinical social workers and she's a therapist and she's also my um, assistant director. And, you know, people like her as well as Deshonda Greenwood uh, with forever care uh, resources, they were, they're lending their services to us because they believe in what we do. And so as we kind of just navigated through COVID, we were able to continue to do whatever we needed to do to help the community. So mm-hmm. we believe in, in being an, in a, being innovative all the way down to installing library boxes. Well, we started to build library boxes in underserved communities and placing them in apartment complexes, filling them with books. Right. Just so the kids, as they walk around, you know, hey, grab a book, you know, read a book, mm-hmm. you know, return it. Just, you know, so that's one of the initiatives that, that we continue to do because, again, we're serving the community that gives to us as well. You mentioned on the uh, website the next goal. And by the way, Tell us why you chose the word next capital N E X and not have the T, but you mentioned on the goal, educate and build sustainable character in young men through life skills, etiquette, professional development, community engagement, conflict resolution, financial literacy, which I think is huge. And more importantly, leadership. Can you talk about how that became your goal, but also why you use the word next with capital N-E-X. 
Yeah, so that's a question that everyone asks. You know, does any X mean anything? And, and it, it really doesn't. It, it means exactly what it sounds like next. We just, I took the T off. I wanted to stand out. Right, there and you go. Next, mm-hmm. meaning, meaning the transition. So we, we accept the boys where they are, whatever mm-hmm. position that they're in. We accept them, and it's not about their current position. It's about the next phase of your life. As you transition from adolescence into young adulthood, we want to be there to help you provide a foundation for you. We are firm believers that men are the foundation of households, and we're losing our young men. Mm -hmm. We're losing them to social media, guns, and drugs. So next really means just a transition from your current situation to the next. And can you talk about how you wind up gathering together the young guys? Because, and you especially mentioned during the pandemic, and I wanted to bring that up because it was harder to reach people during the pandemic because of Mm -hmm. social distancing and a lot of kids couldn't even go to school. They had to go to school virtually. And then you brought up the mental Mm -hmm. health aspect of it. A lot of kids were affected because they couldn't be with their friends or they couldn't do the things that they normally did. And as we mentioned earlier, in, in our conversation, they have access to social media and television and streaming Correct. services. Correct. And sometimes that whole thing just overwhelmed them and made a lot of kids depressed. Mm-hmm. So how are you able to yes, gather so- the kids that you were re- able to reach in Tarrant County? Well, I actually reached out to some friends that knew exactly what I did. They, you know, and if anyone knows me, they know now they know that I really love kids, mm-hmm. you know, and there are some kids at different schools um, throughout the Metroplex that people referred me to. And it was a lot easier than you would think, because if a lot of parents were trying to find something for their kids to do. Wait a minute. You just so you just, you just nailed it. You just nailed it. They had nothing else to do. So it wasn't like, oh, they were too busy. Correct. 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 Mm, very and, nice. and I told, I tell, like I tell all the parents, you know, most parents want their kids involved in something positive, yes. right? Yes. Um, again, our, our boys are between 15 and 21 years old and you, you know, you can't make them do anything. And so one of the things that we told them and we continue to tell them is that philanthropy is big in our organization. It's the foundation of who we are. So if your son does not want to give back to the community that's given to us, then they can't be a next man. Right. There's no way because this is who we are. And um, so all parents would just say, yeah, take my son, do whatever you want with him because he's just sitting here watching TV. Right. He's just <laughs> gaming. On social media. Right. Stuff. Correct. And, and I utilize, you know, the resources as far as, you know, friends and, and family members who knew kids mm-hmm. that wanted to, to get out and and just kind of, you know, breathe a little bit, you know, to to show the community that they're more than what uh, people believe they are as far as just social media and things right. like that. They didn't want to fall into a stereotype. They're like, nah, I have something to offer Correct. and I'm actually kind of smart. Correct. And I got more to give than what you assume. Correct. Yes, sir. And so you you were able to get these kids together, and then I'm sure they talked amongst them their friends as well. That probably added to a few of them, right? 
uh, to to yeah. grow it a little bit more. And sometimes word of mouth is the best credibility. Correct. And again, a grassroots organization with with limited financial means, you know, we have to be creative. And I'll tell you this: we won't accept just any young man. Right. Uh, again, because of because of their age, they have to be in the action phase of their life. They have to have a need for mentorship and want a need for mentorship. You know, and I tell them all the time. And if you have a goal, I can help you get there. But if you don't want anything for yourself, it's hard for someone to want something for you that you don't want. Exactly. You know, so I turn some boys. There are boys that we will turn away if they're not in that phase in their life. You know, but and I tell the parents and we make the commitment to the parents that I'll never leave their their son. I'll never leave them. If they have something that they want to do, I'll be there and I'll walk with them every step of the way. And that's the commitment that all of our volunteers have, uh, all of the men and women that tirelessly tirelessly um, reach out to these kids. And I tell people commitment is not convenient. So when you get that phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning and you've got to be at work at 6, that commitment is when – they need you. You've got to get out of your bed. And so it's the same way for our volunteers. I won't just accept any volunteer because it's another body. I want an able and willing body, mm-hmm. not just a body. So we lead with our heart, and that's the foundation of who we are. How many of the kids were you able to take with you to the uh, town hall meeting on Wednesday, or, or any of them were allowed to go? Yeah, so the great thing about uh, our boys right now is a lot of them are working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. That's a good so thing. That, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So if oh, I think we had about nine of our boys there. Um, good. And it's funny that a lot of the interactions that of the kids that were there and the, the coordinators that got those kids there, we all kind of rub elbows. So North Crowley um, High School was there. Um, that uh, one of the assistant principals there is again one of my buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of mentoring together. Um, if he needs something, he'll pick up the phone and call me. So a lot of the kids that we interact with, although they're not on the the one-on-one basis that we have in our organization, I we all rub elbows in, in some manner. So a lot of those kids already knew. That's fantastic. If you wanted people to know more about what you're doing, and by the way, we're talking again with Robert Walsh. He's the president of Next Metropolitan Foundation. And I know it's got to be hard for you because you're, you know, you're currently an Arlington police officer as well. So you, you probably have very, very limited time just to, to spend. And so I was wondering if there's any way, if anybody wanted to partner with you guys or volunteer with you guys or, or help grow your organization more, is there a way that they can reach you or if there's a way that they might be able to tell you about their kids or, or help you out some kind of way? Yes, sir. Definitely. Um, they can always reach out to us on um, uh, via email. Um, uh, and again, that's Robert Walsh at the next foundation.org. That's, T-H-E-N-E-X-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Or we're on social media, 
Um, they can also call me, um, 817-725-4040. And again, we're always willing and looking for volunteers, again, committed individuals that want to make a difference in the lives of, of our future leaders. Yeah, I, I just love the website. I love all the work that you're doing. Uh, one of the things you mentioned on here, you foster positive relationships with a diverse group of young men and equip them with the appropriate skills and resources to overcome deficiencies that adversely affect them. And that's all a part of the process. And I also like that's actually part of your story. You lived that growing up. Again, you weren't ready when you graduated. You you say you barely graduated because you just weren't really thinking about it hard enough. You were like, okay, I'll get around to it. And then all of a sudden life happened, right? Yes, sir. Going through the motions, just being a kid. Right. And and again, fortunately for you, you wound up going to college. And how many degrees you got? You got the master's too? Yes, sir. I mean, and I just feel like we're fortunate to have you here in Dallas-Fort Worth and in the position that you're in, not only you know in the, in the law enforcement world with the first responders, but you're also there for the kids. And like you said, a lot of your friends had no idea what you wanted to do and how you wanted to impact some lives out there. So we appreciate you, man. I thank you. Thank you so much. It's, this is, you know, this is my calling. This is my ministry. My mom always said you were going to be, in, I was going to be in the ministry and I never understood it, but the mentoring aspect is my ministry. You know, I'm giving back because someone gave it to me. I think we definitely, you know, have to leave something uh, for our next generation. And my mark as, as Sergeant Walsh, is important, but my mark as Robert Walsh is even more important because I have kids, a daughter to that looks up to me as well, and I want to be able to leave a lasting, a positive legacy on, on the community. Exactly, and again, we are so fortunate that you're here in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, area and leaving this impact with the Next Metropolitan Foundation. Again, it's www.thenexmetropolitanfoundation.org. Again, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. I'm Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan, thanking all of you for joining us. Tune in next week as we focus on other organizations doing great things in our community right here on Better Living. So long, everybody. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is back. 
and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.